When we talk about mastering life, we have to talk about what doesn't allow life to be lived in the balance, because a great deal of the mastery is maintaining our sense of balance and direction, a sense of focus and attention. You'll see the metaphors in a thousand places. For instance, uh, I was watching uh, some of the highlights last night at this dance we had, and there was a, uh, there was a basketball game on. And as the person was getting ready to shoot the foul shot, which would have tied the game, one group were booing him, trying to distract the person. Now, if you've ever played basketball and you're trying to keep your sense of focus and attention, anything at all that allows your eye to leave the basket and your body to be in complete rhythm and motion with the eye will throw it off. That's true of any sport, baseball, soccer, uh, hockey, anything. But it's also true in creative work. If you're sitting down as a writer and you start to write, and your, your word processor, typewriter, even with a pencil and paper, or even with a tape recorder, anything at all that jumps into your mind that allows the mind to be distracted, and the mind will generally be distracted about every six to seven seconds, there's going to be a natural jump. Then you'll be thrown off what you're doing, and then you have to keep coming back. You have to fight to come back to it. But the people who are, are best at coming back to it are people who don't allow anything to create a distraction from what they want to do. They have mastered the art of attention. And it's the art of attention that keeps us focused. Without focus, nothing's going to be mastered, nothing we do. So attention is crucial. Focus is crucial, but you can't have attention and focus before you have something more primary. What do you have to have before you have focus and attention? What would have to be there? Desire. Self-confidence. Well, self-confidence is one of the, the motivating conditions you have to have, but you have to have desire. So, and you can't have a desire unless you have a desire for a goal. The goal is merely the object. You can have all the objects, you, you know, in the world that someone else will give you. And how many times in this life do we go for goals that are not our goals? We achieve them, frequently going through courses in college we didn't want to take, but we thought we had to working in jobs we really didn't want to be in, but we were told, be lucky you have a job, you know, take what you can get. Where I came from in West Virginia, whatever you had when you got out of high school, you were supposed to have when you retired. You weren't allowed to change jobs, and if you did, you were considered irresponsible, you were considered immature, ungrateful. No one ever asked you, are you happy doing what you're doing? When I was in England, I went over to interview coal miners, and I was always fascinated by sons and lovers, and. Uh, women in Love and some of D.H. Lawrence's uh, work. And I asked people, are you happy with life? And without exception, not one person out of 200 I interviewed said, that's a stupid question. You know, where's it written we're supposed to be happy with life? I mean, no, we're not happy with life. You know? Well, why don't you change it? And then it's as if I talk to a wall. What do you mean change? We can't change. This is the way we are. This is the way we were taught. This is the only thing we know. This is the only option we have. We're grateful to have some food. We're grateful. And then they go into the justification. You know, I work myself to the bone for what I have. I don't have very much as it is. And you know, if I tried anything else, I wouldn't have anything. And how am I going to support my family? Or, do you have a happy family? Do you have a happy marriage? 
Then again, this blank stare. That's a stupid question. You mean we're supposed to be happy having kids and a family? Yeah, I mean, somewhere isn't there. Aren't you supposed to enjoy this process? Are you just supposed to procreate and, you know, watch something grow up and leave and that's it? And that's it. I never found one single person who told me, yeah, I'm really, I love my wife. We have passion and love and joy. Yeah, it's just wonderful being with her and hugging her and holding her and looking at her and smelling her. And yeah, I love it. Not one. Oh, I love my children. We play together and, and I learn from them. They learn from me and I'm, yeah. No, none of that. But the whole mood of everybody over there is very, very somber. You know, like life is just terrible. But then again, go down to Appalachia where I came from in the West Virginia High Valley. It's the same way. So it's not difficult to see how a lot of people don't even have desire because the moment they have desire and they let someone know, yeah, I got desire to, oh, it's a dream, give it up. What are you doing? What are you thinking about something for? What are you going to change? Uh-huh. How are you going to change? What are you going to change to? Who's going to pay the rent? Uh, and then you start thinking, well, all right, you're right. I, I mean, I, I thought for a moment I could have a desire. Desire, schmire, you stop it, you stupid person. Get back in line and shut up. Okay. And people do all their life. And then they have these fantasies, these dreams, you know. Why do you think so many people play the Ed McMahon, $10 million, read the small print, $5 a week for the rest of your and century life. <laughs> because people want something more. And they think maybe the lottery is it, maybe one of these game prizes is it. They want something more, but they don't know how to get it. Because nowhere in our education, nowhere in our social support system, none of our institutions allow us to even think that it's possible to have a dream that goes beyond what we were told is our destiny. You know, and when you see everything being rubber stamped and you're one of those rubber stamps and you've got your job or you've got your career and you've got your education, then being told it's going to be different, you think, how? I mean, I got to do it all over again? Man, it was hard the first time. You want me to go back to school? You want me to change? You want me to go get another friend? Yeah, but this is not a good friend you have. Well, I know that, but better than no friend, really? Well, why can't we make everything different in our lives? Who says it has to be so hard? It doesn't have to be hard. Hard to me is holding on to something that doesn't work and trying to justify it. Hard to me is thinking negative thoughts, projecting negative deeds, doing destructive things, and then trying to rationalize it. That doesn't make any sense. Easy to me is being healthy. It's simple, it's honest. Eat what's natural and what's real and leave the rest alone. I don't have to make any excuses, any justifications. I never talk about people. I never gossip. I have never betrayed a friend. I don't accuse people. I deal with life. If I got an issue with someone, I confront them and I deal with them. It's simple. Do you know when I go to bed at night and I do a little, I do a little uh, thing where I, I, I give a little, prayer at the end of the day about cleaning the mind, washing the mind clean. And I look to see what I got to clean. What did I say and what did I do that wasn't right? And it gets easier because then you get into a pattern of trying to make the right decision each day. Yeah, we're going to make the wrong decisions. 
But part of growth and part of the mastery of growth is knowing when you have made the wrong decision and making amends for it. But think of all the things you have to go to bed with each night that you know you've done wrong and you're not willing to have the courage and honesty and decency to stand up and say, I did wrong, I'm sorry. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing about human nature. No matter how abusive you can be at times, and I'm sure a lot of you have really been abused in your life, I'll bet that more often than not you're willing to kind of say, oh, it's okay when someone apologized. Am I wrong? Hmm? Right? Someone says to you that they're sorry. It's kind of hard to be angry at someone who says they're sorry. I mean, you know, how far can you carry it? You know, if, if someone's truly sorry and they're trying to make amends and they're asking for forgiveness, I mean, a part of us wants to say okay. A part of us is still that little boy. It's the little girl and the little boy in us that's the healer. That's the energy you got to trust because it's honest. It's in connection with the unconscious. You see, the conscious mind is the mind that you make almost all your decisions with. The conscious mind is protective. The conscious mind is rational. The conscious mind tries to find a way to always take what you are and project it in a way that allows you to maintain who you are to the public. But the unconscious or the co-conscious or the subconscious, it's all the same, is that which is eternally honest. And look at the people in this life who do no wrong. Isn't it amazing that in our society we never look at the person who's not getting cancer, not getting AIDS, not getting diabetes, not getting high blood pressure, the person who is ideally healthy. We are terrified of looking at those people. Least off we find what we didn't want to find, and that is a model for health. The model for health is going to show us all the things we are not. And knowing that we're not going to change in any radical way, the average person's not going to want to see something that's going to be the antithesis of themselves. So instead, we'll look at someone who has high blood pressure and cholesterol around 200 and who's overweight and who's angry and racist and sexist and, you know, and, and inhuman and, uh, and just bitter and, and say, well, you're like me, you know, so, hey, I can go with that. You know, so, so whatever you are, I'll kind of follow the way. You eat ham and potatoes, I'll eat ham and potatoes. You drink coffee, I'll drink coffee. You smoke, I'll smoke, you know. You, and suddenly we wonder why we are staying sick as a nation, because we're not following examples of things that work. If we followed people who work in their life, we would change our life. We continue to follow the same politicians, the same institutions. Think of all the institutional beliefs that you're a part of that don't work and you continue to honor them. You continue to follow them. Why? Think of the people who have not helped you in your life, who have kept you from going ahead, and you continue to go back to those people for additional support. And they continue to give you negative reinforcement. And you continue to go back to them. Now think of that for a moment. That doesn't make any sense. I would never go to someone who was going to give me negative reinforcement out of jealousy or envy, out of being dishonest, out of greed, avarice. I'm not going to go to that person. But then again, we don't look around for the person that would support us in our efforts. If we did, we'd have to look outside frequently the model of our existence. We'd have to look for the exemplary. We'd have to look for the person who shines above the cesspool of life that so many of us have allowed ourselves to be a part of. We'd have to get out of this dung heap and say, God, I didn't know I could smell good. Yeah, well, we can, but not unless we're able to be honest about what doesn't work. So to, in order to master life, you've got to understand what doesn't honor life, what doesn't work. Then you can focus on what should and could, and it starts with desire. 
So right at the top of the list, make a note for this week, what are the things in life you, you've always desired but you have not paid attention to because you felt guilt from the conscious mind telling you all the reasons you couldn't follow through with your desire. Desire is not a pathology, and yet we've been led to believe it is a pathology. We have led to believe it's not responsible, that it's a fantasy. We've even had debates in our society about controlling and trying to create proper fantasy. Isn't it amazing we want the right fantasy? What's your fantasy? Well, I was fantasizing about being an artist in San Diego. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean an artist in San Diego. I, I, I meant uh, to be a... Uh, uh, to be a career diplomat with a Peace Corps. That's it. Good. I like that fantasy. You can have, you can keep that, but stay away from being an artist in Santa Fe. That, you know, first of all, that's not right. It's not responsible. You're flaky. You're outside of society. You're around a lot of people that are vegetarians. What, are you going to go out and smoke that coyote crap out in the desert? And we start correcting our own fantasies. First of all, Stop the idea that you have to justify your life. I'm willing to bet that about half of your daily lives are spent justifying yourself to other people and the work you do and the emotions you have, the relationships that you have, trying to justify your life. It's a big distraction. It throws us off the mastery. It throws us off the focus. So start by honoring it's your life. You're the only one who has a right to live it, and no one else has a right to be in the process that creates who you are, what you are, and how you're going to live it. And immediately, it gives you a breathing space. It clears it out. You just kind of clear people out and say, Mom, don't call me every day and ask me if I'm marrying someone or not. <laughs> right? It's my life, not yours, right? I'm the one who's going to get married when and if I want to, and it's not going to be to make you happy with a grandchild. You got that? If I want to have children, it'll be because I want to have children, not because I want to have children for you to love me. Now, if you haven't gotten around loving me for where I'm at, then, hey, take a refresher course. Start over. <laughs> of course, mom's going to put down the phone from you and start calling every aunt, uncle, niece. She's gone crazy. She's gone crazy. It starts with letting go of the things that don't work. Just let them go. And all it takes is the courage once to say to someone, sorry, if you don't call to support me, if you don't call to share something positive, don't call me. I'm not angry. You know, a lot of times you'll get angry and say, I never want to talk to you again. Boom. You know, and then 25 minutes later, they talk, you know, and you go pick up the phone again. <laughs> That's happened to all of us, especially in families. Wouldn't it be great if you could record all the screaming matches you've had in your life? <laughs> Put them all into one long disc. Sell that on Time Life Warners. America's Screaming Families. Well, hey, it's no, no different than America's hurricanes, right? Now they're marketing hurricanes and tidal waves and great disasters and death mask films as if somehow we should have those. Our life's less big. Time Warner brings you iced tea and how to kill a cop and tidal waves that destroyed America. Why would anyone buy a song, buy any of this crap? It's not supporting life. It supports death. Of course it sells. I remember the anger that back in the 1960s it used to come to all of us who were in the peace movement. You know, like we were to be hated because we wanted love and peace. And they were the power and the 
the elite of society because they wanted war and destruction. We were healthy physically as vegetarians exercising, and we were called health nuts. They were sick and dying and had heart disease and cancer, and they were considered right. Now, something's terribly wrong about that, you know? They polluted the environment and abused it and raped it and destroyed it, and we wanted to save the environment and honor it and respect it, and we were considered environmental crackpots. Isn't it amazing how the status quo is always threatened, always, with anything that is going to reflect upon its image? But part of mastering life is to understand that that's part of the challenge, and it's how you meet the challenge without getting yourself out of focus, because just like the basketball player, all the time someone's going to say, quack, stupid, health nut, crazy person, what are you doing Associate with people who think like you do? Well, I, I like to associate with people who are healthy. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> I should associate with people like you. And we have to say no. We have to keep our focus. So you see, no matter what happens each day, I never lose focus of what the day is, what it can mean, what I want from the day. And I have to have desire to make that day work. You must also, I know we have sociologists and psychologists, I know that we have police officers and firefighters. Hey, there are a lot of sacrifices you have to make in that. I know how many times you've probably been abused by people that you were out there protecting, and how many times you were sitting across and someone trying to help them. Back there is Dolores Perry, and Dolores is a nutritionist, and how many times has Dolores been offended you know, or people tried to offend her because she's telling them that they have to change their lifestyle and diet instead of saying, thank you very much, I respect what you're doing. Instead, they, they mockingly uh, uh, throw it back in her face. That comes with it. We must accept that that comes with it. So don't feel bad if people feel bad at you for trying to help you trying to help them. Don't lose your focus. Don't get angry at yourself and don't get angry with them. Just accept that that's going to happen. Do you ever notice the first thing they tell you in being a lifeguard, for those of you who ever went out to swimming classes, that you must never approach someone head on who's drowning because they'll grab around you and drown you in the process. You have to go behind them, grab them up under the uh, arms and across the neck and bring them in. You know, it's the same way, two people fighting. You're gonna go stand right in the middle of the fight? No. You have to go up behind one person, grab their arms from behind, close their arms and move them back. There are ways of getting involved in helping yourself and other people where you don't become a victim in the process. This series is to teach you some of the lessons that you can learn if you choose to that will help you in that. And right at the top of is desire. Now, what are some of your desires in your career, in your location for living, in the nature of the relationship you would like, and how you'd like your body to look? When we look in the mirror, we should look at what we ideally want to see. Every time you look in the mirror, you should see the ideal body. If you don't see the ideal body, and if all you see is the body you have, then you're going to be limited by the vision of what you have as being all that they're capable of having. But if you ultimately see with your fantasy and with your desire and with your dreams the ideal self, and a part of that's going to come from the inner self, then you'll see what you can be then you have to simply keep the focus to get to it. I mean, if you were looking at a 57-year-old, 58, uh, Ed here has a really strong physique. I've run with him, I've raced with him, he's a five-minute miler. You know, how many guys 58 years old are five-minute milers? And, uh, and that was under tough conditions down in the Texas sun in 95-degree weather, and he was pumping it out there. 
And it was interesting because standing beside me was a, uh, a young guy, and a uh, young, tall, thin guy. He was about 22 years old, and he said, man, he said, I'll tell you, he said, it's easy for me to be thin and, you know, strong. He said, that guy's uh, old enough to be my grandfather. And he said, I respect that guy. He said, because all the other men in my family who are in their 50s and 60s, they're out of shape. They moan and complain. They're always groaning. It's their hemorrhoids. It's their stomach. It's their hernia. It's their heart. It's their something. That's all he says. He goes home, and all he does, he should take a medical book because all he's going to do is talk about people and look up the definitions of the disease they're talking about. When you talk with Ed, it's never about disease because nothing in his body is broken. Nothing is out of balance. Nothing is dysfunctional. His body works. But it doesn't work because it's just by chance. It's not genetic. It's because he works on it. It's in focus. He doesn't lose of what it takes to go out each day and work on it. He has a whole life. And one part of that, just one part, is the respect for his body. Now, here's the payoff. When we start mastering life, everything else that we do is easier. Example. When people uh, go out with me, and socially or in any environment, I'm meeting for the first time at a party or something, uh, Gary, what do you think about nutrition? I don't talk about nutrition when I'm not on the air. What do you mean? I mean, you're this you know, nutrition authority and health authority. Yeah, that's right, I am. But uh, I never think about it. I never think about my eating, exercise, meditation. I never think of any of that stuff. It's not important to me. Unimportant? It's not important. In fact, that conversation happened today. WWOR television came over to do an interview, and I was getting an IV drip, a vitamin C drip. Are you sick? No. Why are you doing that? Because I want to be ideally healthy, and this is giving me a super potentizing effect. You don't talk about nutrition? No, I don't. I just eat right. It's a simple process. I don't have to think about any of this because it's a natural process. I just don't make the bad decisions. If something's not good to eat, I just don't eat. It's that simple. What, am I going to waste away in a matter of an hour? Do you ever see people on an airplane? It's amazing. What would you like? This dead food, chicken, something? Or do you want this steak, something dead also? Uh, yeah, because look, we're going to be in the hour, an hour and a half in the air, and I've got to have all that food in my body rotting away and putrefying, because when I hit the ground, I'm going to have to buy something right in the terminal to eat before I get home to eat again. Why can't you just say, no thanks, you know, I'm fine, I'll have some mineral water. You know, take some fruit with you. And they eat this. And they eat everything, all the time. We're consistent in making bad decisions, and then we wonder why our body looks the way it does. You make the right decisions, and you don't have a body that looks bad. You make the right decisions, you don't have friends that are bad. You make the right decisions, it's being confident in making the right decisions. And you have to go inside to make the right decisions. You have to honor the right decisions. And part of that is not being afraid of what other people are going to say to you when you make the right decisions. Now, how many times have you not done something because you knew it would not get the approval of other people in your life, and you were more concerned about their approval, co-workers or others, than you were about making the right decisions for something you're right? Am I right? How many times in your life do you think you've made the wrong decision because it was more important to have someone accept you than it was to have you accept the right thing going into your mind or body, right? It happens all the time because being right is very important to people. Being on the side of right is very important to people. Honoring your true self seems to be a, a secondary consideration until something is lost, until we end up overweight, until we end up so socially stressed or family stressed or crisis, and then we're generally the last person to know that 
that we've been making all these wrong decisions and everybody knew, but nobody wanted to tell us. And then it's kind of like a big surprise. There's a woman that uh, came over this morning who's a friend of a uh, member of my, one of my good close friends, a member of their family. It's interesting because the woman's a psychologist and uh, she's really stressed out. For a long time, she was blaming her patients and an overworkload and everything else. And, but I've known this person for a long time and, and I said, now remember, this is a counseling session and we have to separate what I would share with you as a, you know, in a friend basis, I'm a, I'm a friend of her brother, versus on a professional basis. And she said, fine. And she said, what do you think the problem is? I, I can tell you in about a minute, we can make this real short. You know? I only, by the way, I only see people once. I never counseled anyone twice in my life. Never. If I have to counsel someone twice, then I'm not honoring intuition. And I base it all on here. I can read a person, tell them what I feel that they need. One, this whole idea of having to have repeated counseling sessions, going back to therapy, that's a game. And it's a stupid game. And I just don't play games. And I said, well, have you ever asked yourself the following? Do you think it's any wonder that in every situation you always have to be right and always have to be in control and that everyone around you, knowing you and knowing they are going to stay around you, have always acquiesced to you being right? As a result, no one ever challenges you because the moment someone tries, boy, you're on them, you're on them fast. And you make it very clear that you are the smarter, you are the more aware, the brighter. And so people have adapted to you. They've adapted to your personality and your temperament. She said, I hadn't thought of that. No one's ever told me. I said, have you ever been concerned enough with anyone's feelings toward you to ask them what they feel about the nature of how you relate to them? Or do you ever care? You cared about the response of the effect that you had, but not the communication. She said, you're right. She said, God, I never thought about that. And as a result, it only took about 10 minutes. And she left and uh, got a call late this afternoon. And she said she spent the whole day, I asked her to do some diary work, and she said she spent the whole day and she was going to spend the whole night, if necessary, writing letters of forgiveness to everyone who she felt now and knows in her heart that she has abused simply by the fact that she never allowed another person to communicate with her where she was open to the communication. She would only have people in her life that told her what she needed to hear about herself. Oh, Carol, you're, you know, you're so bright. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, you dress so nice. Oh, you're, you know, you, you know, you're so right about everything. Because anyone who would say anything else, like that should be on you. Do you know how quickly you adapt to people when you know that if you don't, you're going to get yourself creamed? Of course we do. From children on, you start adapting. Do you think a kid's any different when he comes home from school and knows that he says, Mom, I got a C. A C? How have we failed? Guilt, guilt, guilt. Right? And now the kid feels terrible that they've made you feel bad as a mother or a father because you dishonored them as your parents. They're making you feel guilty as the child. So now you, you feel so hurt that the parents feel that somehow they haven't been the right parents that you have to overcompensate and get the A's. Instead of 
That's fine. Nothing wrong with a C. What does a grade matter anyhow? Maybe you didn't like the class, maybe you didn't like the course, maybe you just weren't paying all that much attention. Doesn't matter. Do what you can do. Just do the best you can do, that's all. But remember, no matter how well you do, I'm still gonna love you the same. Makes all the difference in the world when a child's told they're gonna be loved no matter what. Because then they're gonna be able to be honest with you. But the moment you use a withdrawal of emotion, affection, or support from anyone on any issue, that will alter that person's perception about you. They will no longer communicate with you in an honest way from the heart. They will communicate based upon a need for a certain response and return. That creates a dysfunction, it creates a distraction. You will no longer have your own life, your own desires. You're gonna be living to appease and appeal to other people. Now let's go to a few of these points here. I'd like to give you some, and if you have any questions about any one of these as we go, please raise your hand and we'll deal with them. This is an add-on to last, uh, to, to our previous discussions. All right, first we start with the following. When we're making change, and the whole idea of making changes so we can master our life, where are we gonna get our support? The idea is we wanna prepare before we make our journey. Don't just pell-mell go out and do something. You don't go out and take a new, uh, if you got Epstein-Barr virus, you don't go out and just start eating seaweed because someone said it helps. You know, you have to prepare. You have to do some homework. Very first thing you're gonna need is support for any change you make. When people come down to the ranch, they get support. No one's never came there who didn't get support. Now that doesn't mean they have to accept it, doesn't mean they have to honor it, but it's given. When you come into this workshop, you're gonna be given support, unconditional support. I don't care if you're rich or poor, educated or not, you're all gonna get as much as can humanly be given. Now, in any change you're gonna make, you're gonna need support. First, emotional support. Now remember, you may not right now have the assets that I'm suggesting you're gonna need. But what's that tell you? Right now, if you don't have emotional uh, support for the changes you wanna make about mastering your own life, what does that tell you you need? What else? What does it tell you? New. So right now we write under this new or old. Now you may have emotional support. If you do, good. Then count on it. Make a list because if I'm going to make changes, I got to know where my changes are and who's going to support me in my changes. And if you don't have that emotional support, there are 12 step programs that you can get it from. There are groups in every town in America everywhere that are involved in change. For every homemaker who wants to get out of the home exclusively from doing, or I should say from being exclusive to the home and have a life in addition to the, being a homemaker, there are women's advocacy groups that are out there to help them. There are men's advocacy groups helping them to understand what it is to be a real man and not just a you know, superficial stereotype model of one acting in frequently primordial ways. So there are people who will support us. Now you have to be honest. This is gonna to have to be a long-term process and you're gonna to have to be able to count on this. So if you don't have it, you gotta look for it. And it's not gonna to come to you, you gotta go get it. So you're gonna to have to be affirmative. You gotta make time to go out and find people who are gonna support you without criticizing you or condemning you or trying to manipulate you. Just say, yes, I'm with you. Yes, whatever you need, I'm there for you. 
You've got to have that in your corner. Financial support. Now, here's the irony. Frequently, financial support comes from people not in the way of money being given, but rather frequently in the advice of how people have been able to change their lifestyles and improve the quality of their life in the process. An example, someone who says, you know, it all sounds nice, Gary, but, you know, I mean, I'm living on 32000 a year, and that's paying my mortgage and, you know, my lifestyle, and if I go to change, and I'd like to change, I mean, I don't, I'm really not happy with what I'm doing. I'd like to be in a different environment. I'd like to be around different people. I'd like to see the world. I mean, I, I feel stagnant. I've lived in the same place for so long, and, and I'd like to be someplace else. I've, I've got two areas I'd like to be, and I've got some jobs I'd like to do and crafts, and, and, uh, but I can't afford it. Okay, fine. You're right and you're wrong. You're right that you can't afford it if you're not looking for options to change your lifestyle. You're wrong that you, there are people who've changed their lifestyles and have succeeded. I can show you people that have wonderful lifestyles today. They're deprived of nothing that they feel they need, and yet it's radically different than what they used to have. They learn to change and do without. Let me tell you a little technique I use each year. Now, some of you may find this useful and want to try it, some may not. I never start a new project before I stop an old one. Even things I'm succeeding at, I've given up things that have been profitable, that have made money, that have been successful, and I stop them. I just give them up. I let go of them. And people think this is the stupidest thing in the world. My God, it took so much time and energy and effort and commitment to create something, and now that it's succeeding, you're giving it up? Yeah. Why? Because if I start doing more things than what I can do to keep my balance, then I don't have a balance. And the purpose of living is to have balance, not to have a lot of things going on. So I'm not going to be doing more than what I know I can do and do in balance. So I give it up. By giving it up, I have more time for myself. And I have the opportunity to do something different. Now, not all of us are the same. Not all, all the people want to do creative projects or do different things. It's not as if we should all be living by the same standard. But in the process, I also do something else. As I start a new project, I ask myself, do I want this to be a one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, or five-year project? I don't do anything longer than five years. I can't see for me, and again, I'm only referring to myself in this case, doing anything longer than five years. Uh, I like to do other things. So think about what would be different in your life if, for instance, you were told you have five years to live. Would you just keep doing the things you're doing now for five years and then die? Or would you do something different? And frequently what you would start to do is do what you really want to do and find the ways of doing it. And every year I try to give away as much of what I've got as I can. Now, it's a big challenge when you come from a background when you never had anything. I came from a very poor background, I mean very poor, where I've been working since the age of eight, and I had nothing given to me at any point in life, nothing, and never, never decried that. But to be able to give things away and give them up means it's a challenge now to see what I can live without and also gives me an ability to bring new things in. If you don't learn to what, let go of things, then you just have clutter. You know, you have too much. So part of the art of living and part of the art of keeping a mastery of life is the art of letting go. The more you let go of, the more you have room to experience freedom 
to have something else there. A friend of mine went through the crisis this year, and it was a major crisis, of not being able to know about his career that he'd had for 22 years. So finally, finally, in one absolutely nerve-wracking weekend, uh, he let go of his career. And he went through withdrawal crisis and uh, a lot of depression. And just two days later, he was offered an opportunity to do something that was just so wonderful for him. And it was only a six-month project. And I said, don't look now for projects that are going to take you through the rest of your life. Look through projects that are going to make transition points in your life, that take you to a new level. And it's not important. You don't have to prove anything to, anymore, to anyone. So right now, he's living out in Arizona on a dude ranch. He saw the movie. I'll never forget, we were sitting nine months ago and seeing that movie, um, uh, City Slickers. And all through the movie, he could, he'd, he'd, boy, I'd, I'd love to do that, love to do that. And then the day came when someone said, hey, you know, would you like to do this? And, oh, God, and then the first ten things out of his mouth. Well, I don't have the money, and I don't know anything about, I have never ridden a horse, and blah, blah, and going all the no's. And I, I was there, and I said, hold on, now, give me ten equal reasons why you would like to do it and could do it. Well, he gave me thirty. <laughs> And the guy was sitting there, and I said, now, I said, do you see if you would have stopped with the 10 negative? You wouldn't have done it. But you went ahead and showed why. And that's what I'm talking about. Look for the reasons why you should do what you want to do. Don't keep going back to the patterns of behavior that tell you why you can't and shouldn't. And that's what the conditioned mind will always do. The conditioned mind will always bring you back to the self-limiting self. You have to go beyond the reasons why something won't work and can't work. The reason that woman's not going to die of AIDS and the reason that guy didn't die of AIDS is because they weren't willing to accept the old medical dogma that just roll up your arm, take your DDT or take this. They're looking for the alternative. Yes, it was terrifying, but today they're healthy and happy because of it. That will open them up to other things. And that's what we're talking about. Ed's open to other things in his life. He's not looking at just growing old, retiring, and dying. He's looking at all, being anything he wants. Because if he was able to focus and master running the marathon, getting his mind and body in shape, reprioritizing his life, then he feels he can do just about anything that he wants to do. Am I right or wrong, Ed? So that's the point. That's what I'm discussing. That's what the meaning of this is. Now, special skills. What do you need to learn to do what you want to do? One nice thing about this country is we have more classes and workshops and adult education than any country in the world. We are filled with a nation at this time in the 90s of rejuvenation, growth. I mean, look at the learning annex here in New York City. Look at all the classes and workshops. Look at the 92nd Y and the lectures and workshops. You could get any skills you need. You can barter for services. You don't have the money, exchange. There's always something you have in, in, that you can help someone else with that will help you. We call them creative, work, uh, creative scholarship exchanges, where people will exchange a service or a skill for you know, something that you have in the way of teaching or learning. Now, list your special attributes and skills. A lot of times, you're not even aware of how special you are in your skills and attributes. So write them down. Think of all the crises in your life that you've weathered. In all likelihood, the very things that you feared the most that have kept you in prison long ago, you've already weathered those. 
You've already gone through separations and uh, deaths and uh, firings, a lot of things that are traumatizing, high up on the stress scale, and you've gone through it. You're, you've survived. Well, hey, if you've survived that, you can survive anything. So nothing should create fear now. We've all gone through humiliations. We've all gone through these processes, and we've survived. That's what's nice about an AA meeting or an OA meeting or any of the other, you know, uh, you get people stand up and say what they've done, and they've survived. They're acknowledging they have a life beyond what had been a crippling experience. How do we sabotage our own efforts? Because that's the one you got to keep watching at. If you don't watch it, how you sabotage your own efforts, the moment you start feeling a little funky or out of sorts or depressed, the moment you're not paying attention to keeping your sense of balance and focus, the moment you let your guard down, that's exactly when you're going to sabotage your efforts and bring yourself right back to the beginning. And that, in turn, can start to spiral back on you. And then you, when a person gets on an eating binge, they just eat themselves back into oblivion. You know, I know people who eat till they can't breathe. They literally, they just... And when they get negative, they just get negative all over the place. So watch the process. List how you sabotage. And you know the best thing? If you have a really good friend, or if you're part of a support group, let someone in that support group know that you do sabotage yourself and that if you see yourself starting, you'd like some help. And so someone can remind you not to do something. Hopefully you'll remind yourself. Do your inner beliefs and outer realities complement each other? Do your inner beliefs, what you really believe inside, and your outer realities, are they complementing? Because they should. If your inner beliefs are one thing and you're living a different set of standards on the outside, that's not good. You've got to give one or the other, uh, give one or the other of them away. Because that creates a psychic spasm. Believing in one thing and doing another. What have you forgiven and not forgiven? Because the things that you are still holding on as unresolved conflicts, beyond all the psychobabble that we hear about, those unresolved conflicts are frequently what will keep you from getting back to your life. You keep paying attention to these unresolved conflicts. There's a time when you've got to give them up. And again, giving up an unresolved conflict is a healing process. Because now, instead of spending time thinking about what wasn't, what, you know, what people betrayed you or abused you, or what you didn't do in life because of that betrayal or abuse, now you're not spending time thinking about that. Now you're right on track. There are a million ways you can forgive. You can do the Oponopono, the Hawaiians. You can do you know, the mantras. Uh, every religion and every belief has a way of forgiving. But it's all that has to happen is you have to realize you no longer need to invest in the pain that came from the original indiscretion or abuse. You have to make your life more important than your pain. If your pain is more important and the memory of the pain is more important, because it's all you're living with now is the memory of the pain, a memory, a ghost from the past has more reality to you than a flesh and blood warm human being now. That's not very smart, is it? It was bad enough that you were abused or you know, disregarded or hurt as a human being, and now you're compounding the danger and the damage 
by living with something long after the experience. Give it up. You don't need a lifetime to do it. You don't need 35 workshops with, you know, all the uh, current people who are popular out there telling you all about your mother and father and what they did to you. And we know, you know what they did. You know, just get it out and say, that's okay. My life's more important than that pain. When you become your experiences, when your character, your personality, when your capacity for adaptation, when your ambitions, when your goals are all based upon your experiences, then you have no life. You just wait till the next experience to see what another part of you is going to be changed. You're not a whole functioning, dynamic, integrated human being. You're a puzzle with a million pieces, and each day another piece is being added on, and none of it is a perfect configuration. None of it has a heart and soul. We have to acknowledge that experiences are tangential to life, but should not be life. Nothing that I will experience will ever replace what I am. Therefore, I'm able to live beyond my experiences. If I cannot be more significant than my experiences, then I have no life. I just have a bunch of experiences. And when I listen to people talk about their life, they never tell me about themselves, they tell me about their experiences. What you have is we have experiences that we can draw feelings and emotions from, but we shouldn't become solely the feelings and emotions of our experience. Example, if I sit with, uh, if, if I go on a trip, let's say, uh, into the Amazon, which I did, all right? And if I, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's steamy and hot and there are mosquitoes and there's a lot of manipulative people and every time you turn around, uh, you think you're going to meet someone nice and a shaman and instead you get hucksters and hustlers just like on 42nd Street trying to manipulate out every buck you got. And you come back and you start hearing the people around you and what the people around you are saying is, oh man, that experience and these people, and suddenly their whole view of a whole culture is based upon their experience. They have allowed an experience to dictate their feelings towards a whole culture. 